Please turn with me to our scripture, to Mark 2, the first uh, four verses. Um, so read nicely for us by Shinar. But I'd like us to consider just the first four verses again. I'll read from a different translation that he read from. And you may want to keep it open because I will refer to the Bible, uh, to this passage as we uh, proceed. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, other people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word of God to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was laying on. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for the words of scripture given for our edification. May your spirit anoint our minds and our hearts that we may be receptive to the words and that they may become like living water within us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Jesus had just completed his first missionary journey during which he had performed numerous miracles. And everywhere he had gone, the crowds flocked him. As you read the Gospels, you'll see that there was hardly anywhere our Savior could find rest until somehow he managed to return to Capernaum without anyone knowing. And he managed to remain incognito for a few days. But it wasn't long before news of his presence leaked out. And those days they had no benefit of Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Maybe they're like the Adventist um, grapevine. It spreads very quickly, right? The people of Capernaum had heard of how Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law. They learned of how he had cast out demons. Now, curious, they wanted to see him for themselves. Most probably went because they wanted to see him heal or, or because they themselves needed healing. So no doubt some of them brought their sick with them. You know, there is always an excitement and thrills and attraction when we hear of someone healing. Am I right? Oh yeah, absolutely. If it were announced at the conclusion of the service, that I would be here next week and not Pastor Glenn or Pastor Vincente who was with me in my office this week and he's looking forward to being with you by the way. If it were announced that they were delaying their coming and I would be here to preach, maybe you'd cancel the potluck, the fellowship meal. Hopefully you'd still come. But if I were today in this service to perform some act of healing such as to cause someone to walk again 
or restore hearing to the deaf or speech to the mute. And it were announced that I would be here next week's Sabbath. There'd be no room in this church. Am I right? Yeah. And not only would you be here, but you'd have told your family members, your friends, your colleagues, your neighbors, and they wouldn't need much persuasion. They would be here because along with your passion in sharing and their curiosity, you couldn't keep them away. That's human nature. We are excited by the extraordinary. Unfortunately, not many of us realize that the gospel is the most extraordinary of all things. So the people filled the house where Jesus was staying until they even spilled out into the courtyard. I mean, they pushed together so tightly, it was almost impossible to move. And I was a boy growing up in uh, South London, England. Um, when, I, when I went to college, uh, it was through the center of, of the city, and I live in the southwest. So I'd always catch the underground, the train. Anyone been on the um, London subway, underground? Absolutely. He said, okay. Rush hour time? Okay. Rush hour time. You can stand up like this. You don't have to hold on to anything. Because people are so tightly packed that they support each other. So you can imagine what it was like in here. And, you know, there's always room for one more. Okay? And they just wanted to see, to see him maybe perform a miracle. But instead, he preached the word of God to him, to them rather. That is, he taught them about the kingdom of God. The text does not say uh, how they responded to his preaching. But maybe they did not realize that in his preaching, he was actually performing the greatest of all healing. He was offering them healing from sin. He was offering them eternal life. So verse 3 you have before you, informs us that after the crowd had arrived, some of the men came. Four of them carrying a fifth man on the bed between them. He was a paralyzed man. Now the focus is now switched from the crowd in the house switched from Jesus to these four able-bodied men carrying one who was unable to help himself. Now scripture does not tell us much about the man except that he was paralyzed. Now whether this was partial we don't know or whether his entire body was paralyzed is not mentioned only that he had to be carried. He was totally dependent unable to do anything for himself he had to depend on others I don't know if any here you've ever been sick maybe a broken leg or something where you needed someone to help you have you ever had that experience I don't know if you can quite imagine what he had to go through in his life just a simple act of turning around on his bed was beyond him. His mind alert, but his body hopeless. 
We cannot tell if he had become immune to the shame that accompanied him having others help him with his most private bodily functions. It would have been so easy for him to pity himself as day after day he lay on his bed, immobile, helpless, feeling totally useless. Not able to take care of himself, much less to contribute to the well-being of his family. These social scientists tell us how important work is to a man and how it determines his self-worth. This man could not have felt any worth whatsoever. Even in the description of the man, the gospel writers, including Mark, simply mentions him by his medical condition. We often do the same, don't we? We describe people by their disability, by their body size, or their ethnicity. And they don't, we don't take time to find out who the person is, to find out their name. See, without a name, the person has no value in our estimation. We seek out the names of those in whom we're interested. If we're not interested in you, I'm not going to bother seek out your name, am I? That's how we are as human beings. That's why when a young man sees a young woman who catches his eye, what does he immediately want to know? Men? Her, yeah, her phone number? No, her name, then her phone number. <laughs> or these days, email. What, right? Yeah, the name. However, when we come across those who are destitute, homeless, maybe with body odor, because of the dirt, sitting in the street with outstretched palms, longing for us to put a few coins in them, we don't really see them as individuals. We don't see them as, as people with identity. We often see them as nuisances or annoyances getting in our way. So we quickly hurry by wanting to put them out of our vision and out of our conscience. That way they don't exist. Not so with God. Not so with God. In John 10, he is referred to there as the good shepherd. He calls you and me, his sheep, by our names. I'm thankful. The Bible says God knows my name. He knows your name because he loves us with an extraordinary love. You know, nothing is said about the name of the paralytic man other than his disability. So no personality, no family, no worth. In Capernaum, there were others just like him at the very bottom of society. No ability to help themselves. All the very best they were able to do was never enough to move them from where they were. They needed someone to help them. Today in our country, right here in Canada... Maybe right here in Belleville, you know Belleville better than I do. 
There are always those who are at the bottom or very near to the bottom of our society. Am I right? Those who are in the same situation. Their circumstance so hopeless. And even when they do their very best to help themselves, like the paralytic, it is of no consequence. Even when they make some progress. You know, the little increment by which they move up almost seems insignificant. They too need someone to help them. The text says that four men carried the paralytic on the mat that was used as his bed. Now we need to admire these men because they are the anonymous heroes of this passage. The Bible writer does not mention their names either. It describes only their actions. You see, it's their work for the paralytic that's highlighted, not their identities. See, some of us, we want name recognition, but not the work. Others will do the work, but are not satisfied until they are also recognized or rewarded for their work. I'm convinced that the true value of a person is measured by what he or she gives and not what he or she hopes to receive. See, our works of service do not have to be published. An old preacher once said that we cannot all work in God's front garden where others will see the work of our hands. Some of us, he says, has to work in God's backyard where no one will ever see what we have done. He says, does it matter? Just be glad that you're working for God. You're in His property, you're on His property, and He sees your work. And that's what really matters. So by the time these anonymous men arrive at a home where Jesus was teaching, they were so late that they could not even get near the clogged doorway. Why? Because they had to go and get the paralyzed man. See, by going for him and then determining the best way to transport him had delayed them. It cost them to help the paralyzed man. Now they themselves could not get near to Jesus. Now we do not know the paralytic had asked to be taken to Jesus. Scripture doesn't say. Or whether these men in their compassion for him had actually initiated the task. In fact, nothing is said about the relationship to him. They simply cared enough to take him to Jesus. What happened after that would be between a man and Jesus. As God's children, I believe, I am convinced, that we must first care for people to the extent that we will suffer inconvenience. We will make sacrifices to help people and to take them to Jesus. The paralyzed of our society, the downtrodden, the destitute, the distressed, the brokenhearted, the spiritually needy, those who cannot help themselves, those who need you and me to turn them over, to lift them up, we must be those anonymous men and women 
who will sacrifice in order to take them to Jesus. And believe me, my friends, it costs to help someone. You have to give up something to help someone. It may cost you time or effort or money or even comfort. But giving means just that. It means to give. In Mark 5.30, we see later after a woman who had been suffering for 12 years with a hemorrhage, when she touched the hem of Jesus' clothes, Scripture says that Jesus felt power go out from him. He gave of something. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten Son. It costs to give. And when you give from your storehouses, it gets depleted. At that moment, you do have less. You have less time. You have less money. You have less comfort when you've given. But as soon as you realize that the little that you have given is really an abundance of the person to whom you've helped, it is as if your storehouse has been refilled to overflowing. This is what happens when we are faithful in tithes and offerings, you know. Where we are encouraged to move from selfishness. In Malachi 3.10, where God promises that when we are faithful in tithing, in order that there is an abundant supply for everyone, He says, See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. It's the same. When you help someone. It's the same. When we give. For someone else. And I say that. If we want to reach out to our community here, community here in Belleville. We must be willing to give of ourselves. Our time. And of our means. We must do our part. And God will be faithful to do his. The men's part in Mark 2 was to take the paralytic to Jesus. That's their part. But when they got there, it looked like their mission was about to fail because they couldn't even get near to Jesus. But these men were determined. Nothing would prevent them from taking the paralytic to Jesus. So they looked for another route. The lesson is very simple. Whenever we are faced with seemingly impossible situations seek another way to take someone to Jesus when the traditional methods will not work do something unorthodox there is always a way you see Jesus is inside the house you must not give up the paralytic had no hope but Jesus his life had no value outside of Jesus. So they looked for another way to make sure they could get him to Jesus. And someone looked up and noticed a flat roof. And they went up the flat roof. Dug a hole large enough to lower the man through it. Now you can just imagine what was happening below. There was Jesus crowded around all sides by people pressed tight 
I don't know how much room he had. But as he spoke, you can imagine as they heard the noise and dirt began plastering, dirt began falling down. You know, people are stepping back in each other's toes to get back out of the way. But they looked up and Jesus stopped teaching. And he looked up to see this, these men's faces silhouetted against the, the sky. And then to see them lower the pallet in which the man, the mat. And the man was lowered right down to the floor at the feet of Jesus. The four men had done their part. They had taken the paralytic to Jesus. Can you imagine their joy? They had found a way. They, they had done it. But had the man been healed? No. He was still on the mat. But they were jubilant because they had brought him to Jesus. They had done their part. They had not attempted to heal him. They couldn't. They did what they were able to do. That was to take him to Jesus. In our outreach to our community, do not expect church to do the impossible. It will only lead to disappointment and frustration. Our role is to do what we are able to do. But when we have decided that what we are able to do, we must be tireless about it. We must not give up. We must work it. And when there are obstacles, find a way around those obstacles. If it means going to the roof and digging a hole in it, then by all means, do just that. And as the people were getting over the shock of seeing a man lowered, in verse 5, Jesus surprised them by saying, Son, your sins are forgiven. The Bible says when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. You know, as soon as Jesus saw the four men lower and the sick, he realized the extent to which they had gone. And the scripture really shows us that he was moved by their faith. It's when he saw their faith. It was faith, not only of the four men, but that of the sick man himself. Who, you know, maybe in some conversation made an agreement to go to Jesus. He maybe had never seen Jesus before. But he had heard how Jesus had healed. You know, Jesus is always moved by faith. The centurion in Matthew 8, who said to Jesus, Just speak the word and my servant will be healed. The woman with the hemorrhage, as I mentioned earlier, for 12 years, if I can just touch the hem of his garments, I will be healed. Nothing moved Jesus as faith did. Everywhere he went out, he sought out faith. And whenever he found faith, he rewarded it. And I tell the church that God is still the same today. He still seeks the faithful. And when he finds faith as small as a, uh, as a mustard seed, he promises he will reward that faith to be able to move a mountain. You see, faith is the declaration that Jesus is Lord. Faith states that Jesus is the answer to all our needs. 
Faith says that Jesus is the foundation on which we build our lives. So while the four men and the sick man might not have fully embraced him as Messiah, they had faith that he was able to heal. So they brought the man to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? He calls him son. The first thing Jesus does is to take this nameless, worthless, pitiful man, often invisible to society, and uses a term of endearment. He calls him son. Jesus looked at this sinner, besieged by sin, left helpless, but he saw him as his own child. It's the same way he sees you and me. When people disparage us, say bad things about us, dispute, uh, dis abuse us, make things difficult for us, and we feel that we're alone and we're dejected, he calls us by name. He says, you are mine. You're bought with a price. You're precious to me. I came, he says, so you might have life and have life abundantly. His heart must have gone out to him as the creator, seen his creation under the burden of sin. So he then pronounced the words, your sins are forgiven. The man was paralyzed, but Jesus declared him what? Forgiven. The man came, came seeking healing, not forgiveness. But Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Let me tell you, we don't even know what we need. But Jesus does. Jesus looked at the man, saw that his sickness was linked to his mind and his guilt of sin. Therefore, there's no point healing the body that would eventually decay at death unless he first healed the man's sin. Now please, do not leave here today with the impression that when a person is sick, it's because of their sinfulness. Don't leave it that impression. We're not saying that. Okay? But sometimes, sometimes, God permits His children to suffer sorrow so they might cling all the more to His outstretched hands. During the stilling of the storm, the disciples learned more in the boat as it had been tossed to and fro by those waves when Jesus was asleep in the bow than if they had remained on the land, nice and secure and dry. Daniel would never have known God's power to shut the mouth of lions had he not been cast into lions' den. You see, history, brothers and sisters, attests the simple facts that some of God's most faithful saints have suffered the most. And yet their suffering brought them nearer to God. The paralytic was different. His sickness hadn't brought him near to God. However, he had sinned. He knew it. And so did Christ. So when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, the man did not dispute it. He did not argue. He accepted the forgiveness. And the moment he accepted God's forgiveness, 
he was ready to use his limbs again. And as Jesus commanded, take up your mat and go home. The man who had not been able to help himself, always depended on others for the simplest movement, movement immediately stood, took up his mat, and walked out as that tightly packed crowd somehow magnifying space to part to let him through. I was wondering how Jesus didn't say stay and listen to what I have to say. Just says go home. The miracle in his heart was had taken place. The forgiveness had taken place. Verse twelve, as we come to a close, says they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this before. The crowd had come curious to see Jesus. Instead, they left glorifying God. And all because four men and some others gave of themselves their time, their means to reach out to someone who needed their help. Which of these nameless men would have thought that God would be glorified because of their selfless concern to a fellow human being. Yet this is exactly what happens. When we reach out to help someone. In Matthew 25. Jesus said that when we perform acts of mercy and charity. To the least of these in the community. We do it unto who? Unto him. And that he will reward us accordingly. The foreman brought the sick man to Jesus for healing. But Jesus gave him grace. He forgave him even though the man did not come confessing or even repenting of his sins. Jesus freely gave him grace. The four men, now forgotten by everyone in the house, had not realized that in their desire to help the needy man, they had become instruments of God's grace. You and I can also be instruments of God's grace. Because Jesus calls us the salt of the earth. A light set on a hill. God's grace may be given to men, women, boys and girls. Simply because you and I take time to stretch out our hands and offer care to them. God's name will be glorified. Because of this church's outreach to its community. So let us become instruments of God's grace. Are you brothers and sisters willing to be a means by which someone is helped? Are you courageous enough to take someone to Jesus? Just look what happens when you do. They receive God's grace. They are forgiven. They are healed. And God's name is glorified just because of you. I call you today, as you prepare to receive a new pastor, a new under-shepherd, because Christ is our shepherd, to commit yourself to God so that you may work with Him, that you may follow the lead of, your, of the Holy Spirit to reach out to others. I ask you to call on God 
to ask him to fill you with compassion for others because sometimes we don't have the compassion for others because we're so full of what we need for ourselves to give you courage to move from your place of comfort so that you'll never be satisfied unless you are helping someone I urge you to think of the grace God has given you the liberation you have because of it because of God's grace you have assurance you have peace you have confidence you possess a quality of life millions are seeking but are looking for in the wrong places and you are the instruments by which they may have what you have so today I appeal to you as we sing our hymn and we pray that you will make it a time of commitment to God for you to be an instrument of God's grace. May God bless you as you pledge to God, as you seek His power and His strength to be a witness, to be an instrument of His grace.